This message first aired on the radio on December 16, 2003. We're in Romans chapter 8 today. We're glad to be taking the Word of God to you. We trust that the Word of God finds you today, listening in a position to hear God's voice behind it. Why do we just take the Word of God and teach it? Because we believe that the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. Believe it always has been and it still is. The Lord Jesus Christ was the Word of God made flesh. We believe we have the entire, complete, inspired, word-for-word Word of God given to us and preserved through all generation, not through the agency of man, but despite man, by the agency of God. And we live in a time where the Word of God is more available to us and more easily studied and more commonly uh, available. By that I mean available to the common man uh, more widely than it has ever been. And it is also more contested with other messages, with uh, anti-Bible mentality, with false teaching perhaps than it ever has been. But we do have the Word of God, and we don't know anything better than to just teach it the way it is. So we're in Romans chapter 8, and if you've been following along with this Bible study, you know we're in Romans 8. We're at the real climax of the book, doctrinally speaking. We're in Romans 8, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Those four or five verses there, the going gets a little bit thick, and we're slowing down and taking our time to go through it carefully because we don't want to get anything wrong and we don't want to be incomplete. And we certainly don't want to overlook important aspects of what God teaches concerning the nature of our salvation when we receive Christ as our Savior. Now, if you have had difficulty following the study, if you have been missing different times, that's why we have BibleStudy.net website. You can listen to archive broadcast at www.biblestudy.net. You can ask questions there. You can even get Bible helps. You can download some free software that will help you study the Word of God. But this is what our purpose is. And one thing we do is we enjoy the Bible. And we'll find out most people don't enjoy their Bibles. Talking about the Bible is not studying the Bible. Just as talking about preaching is not preaching, talking about praying or preaching about praying is not praying, talking about the Bible is not studying the Bible. And talking about studying the Bible is not studying the Bible. The Bible is something to just be enjoyed and it will never be understood by you if you have not received Christ as your Savior. If you're not a child of God, you don't have a new nature, you're not going to understand the Word of God. It's just not going to happen. But if you have a new nature, one of the privileges of the new nature is the witness of the Spirit. We're going to study about that, the witness of the Holy Spirit himself, witnessing with your born-again human spirit to teach you the Word of God. And that's the wonderful thing, and that's why a preacher can preach in hope to Christians. A preacher can preach in hope to Christians because despite the fact that they may not listen well, that they may have all kind of other problems going on, distractions, all kinds of false teaching they may be hearing, who knows what, a preacher can preach with hope to Christians because they do have this new nature. And this is the marvelous teaching of Romans chapter 8. We read in Romans chapter 7 how there's a conflict of two natures. But at this part, in Romans chapter 8, we begin to realize the functionality of the new nature and the great work of the Spirit in the believer. And without further ado, then, we'll just go plunge into it, and we'll look here at verse 14 and 15, which we covered yesterday, but we'll just go back and look at it a little bit. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, a couple of things we can say in addition to what we've already said about that. 
First thing we'll remind you is that the Spirit of God, or God's Spirit, leads the believer. And so one of the capabilities of the new nature that is not in any other person but a Christian, this is part of what regeneration means, this is part of what it means to be born again, and the new vehicle created perfectly after Christ Jesus, the new vehicle or the new nature, is given to you as part of the deposit that God gives you. He gives you the ability to be led by His Spirit. What it means to be born again is that you're born spiritually. That is to say, before you're regenerated, before you're born again, before you have a new nature, you're dead spiritually. You have a human spirit, but it is a dead human spirit. Well, what does a dead human spirit mean? A dead human spirit means, in the Bible context, one that is not in communication with God's Spirit. God's Spirit is not internally communicating with your spirit. Once uh, you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a new nature given, there's a new facility, you're spiritually born. Your spirit, your human spirit, is born from above and is in communication with God the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that here a little bit in the next verse, in verse 16. We'll see some more of that. But part and parcel of that is the facility now to be led by the Spirit. Remember we talked about what religion teaches. Religion teaches, for example, the religion of Jiminy Cricket teaches, let your conscience be your guide. And of course your conscience can't guide you. Your conscience comes into play only after the fact. He's the umpire calling you safe or out and is not your leader. Your conscience can tell you what you've done is something that you think is sin, or your conscience can defend you saying, well, I think I'm okay with this, but it is not one that can lead you. Only the Spirit of God can lead you. That vehicle, it tells us, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And now I want to talk a little bit about the sons of God and about being one of the sons of God. Well, for it does speak to maturity. It also speaks of something a little bit different than the children of God. A child is immature, a son is mature, but sons of God heretofore was a term reserved for the angels in heaven. If you look in Genesis chapter 6, you'll see that the sons of God are the angels of heaven. And if you look at the book of Job, you'll see that sons of God was a term reserved for the angels in heaven. When the sons of God came before God and Satan with them, Satan, one of the sons of God. And sons of God was a term, or is a term in the Bible, reserved for created beings, not born beings. Now, naturally, we're born, and naturally, we're born from descendant parents. We have the, every cell of our being has the chromosomal factors of our, our father and our mother, and that's the natural man, and of course, that's how it is that we are born sinners, and that's why it is we have sin and the nature of sin as we get our nature from our father and we become thereby sinners, sons of sinners, children of sinners. So sons of God is reserved for created beings. Well, if any man is in Christ, there is a new creation. And that, now, of course, if any man is in Christ, why, there are many in Christ. There is a new creation. It tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
as part of really the practical correction of Christians who stray from the doctrine of this book of Romans. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. There is a new nature. And therefore, this new nature created after Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, is not a nature that sins. It is a new creation. And therefore, elevates the one who is born again to the status of sons of God. When we realize that the sons of God are the angels, and we see that this term now being applied to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to see the underpinnings of what later is written in the book of Hebrews concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and his ascended headship. This is a wonderful and a deep topic, but it's one that we should grasp and take hold of. Because our Lord Jesus Christ did not merely die for our sins and rise again from the dead, but he ascended, and the ascended reality of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of those great unattended matters. But not only did he ascend, but when he ascended into the heaven as a man, flesh and bone, he was exalted there above the angels. And if we turn to the book of Hebrews for just a moment, we can read this. This is the first verse of the first chapter of Hebrews and following. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And of course, when we see the term sons of God, we realize that he has been appointed heir of all things. Now you say, well, he's the creator of all things. Yes, God, he is the alpha and the omega. He is the originator and the end of all things. He's on the creating side and he's on the receiving side as the heir of all things. Well, we could go on and on about our Lord Jesus Christ and his great glories, the glories that he had with his Father from time immemorial, the glories that are due him for time immemorial and for the age that is to come. But really, he is appointed heir of all things as a man, as a man, by whom also he framed the ages, literally framed the ages. This doesn't have to do with that he created all things. He did create all things. That's elementary truth. This is deeper truth. History organized around our Lord Jesus Christ, who being the brightness of his glory. Now, this is who he is. He's the brightness of the glory of God. That is to say, he is the apex of God's glory. He is God's glory. He's the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. That is, he is not only is he the effulgence of the glory of God, but he is the exact representation of God's substance. And that is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Being this, and upholding all things by the word of his power, that is, holding all things together by the word of his power. Now, all things are held together by the word of God. That's why we're happy to preach it. That's why we can't think of a better thing to do than that, than to teach it. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what he did. Now, nobody saw this. This is just reported in the scriptures. And so, distinguishable from the resurrection, where, for example, Thomas put his hands in the Lord's wounds, 
put his fingers in his wounds and put his hand in his side. And uh, the Lord told him, Blessed are they who don't see and believe. This glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ ascended on high is on the basis of no sight by anyone except the account given to us here in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere, of course, in the Scriptures. So, But we're all on the same basis here, faith in God's Word. Being made so much better than the angels. And, of course, this is the first argument of the book of Hebrews. We're not going to go through it in some detail. We just want to point out that he was made better than the angels as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now he's on the other side of the creation. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ inherited as a man. He created not as a man, but he inherited as a man after his incarnation. And in so doing, being the heir of all things, he obtained a more excellent name than the angels. So the name Jesus the Christ, or Christ Jesus, is a more excellent name than angels, and when you're in him, you have become, in a standing, more excellent than the angels. And therefore, it teaches us in Romans chapter 8, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And it gives to us the direction now of the Christian life, because the Christian, we we do understand the birth, we understand the creation of the new nature, and now we're going to understand the direction of it, which is all the way to a more excellent name than the angels, a more excellent status than the angels. So not only being justified by grace through faith, am I in a better position than Adam, who had never sinned, but I'm in a better position than the angels. Wonderful truth it is. Stick with us. There's a lot more good news today right after this brief message. Well, there's quite a song that typifies something, I think, of the spirit that's given to us. Not the spirit of bondage, whereby to fear, but we have received the spirit of sonship, verse 15. Read in the King James Version, the spirit of adoption. Not a good word, adoption, there. I don't think an accurate word. The actual word is a compound word, huiothesia, which is based on the word huis, or son, sonship. Now, it's true in a legal sense. Adoption is a good word in a legal sense. Because legally speaking, once a child is adopted, there is no difference whatsoever between that child legally being adopted and uh, that child being born in the family in the first place. There's no difference. So adoption does uh, tell us a little bit something insofar as we're not naturally born into the family of God, but we are born into God's family. It is something that is done by the, the new birth. Of course, we learn that we are begotten of the Spirit of God. In fact, when we receive Christ... It says, as many as received him, in John chapter 1, gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe into his name. And that's what we do. We simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But marvelously, we're begotten of the Spirit. We are begotten of God at that time, and we are born from above, and by birth we come into sonship. And that Spirit uh, that we are given, part of our deposit, which is which we'll learn about. It's called a deposit. In the book of Ephesians, we'll learn about it. 
We'll learn also about uh, something about it if we, uh, by the grace of God, can get to Second Timothy. And we'll learn about the deposit that God gives to the believer, but that deposit is the new nature. We are born again into a family. Inside of a household, there's family and there are servants. In the household of Abraham, uh, he had 318 men that he trained to be warriors. So who knows how many total people that represented. That would be 318 men, 20 and above, many of whom would have families. And he had a very large household. And in a household, there are both servants and sons. And the son differs not at all from the servant, according to the book of Galatians, uh, when he's real young, because he's under the same governors and tutors that the servants are under. But one thing that distinguishes a son from a servant is the way he addresses the master. Now, I'm a guy with employees. My employees will call me boss. But my grandchildren never call me boss. My grandchildren call me papa or grandpa. Here we see that even when they work for me, when my children work for me or my grandchildren work for me, they call me dad or papa. They have a different spirit about them with relationship to me. They have the spirit of family. And here it tells us that we have a different spirit. We have the spirit of family with God. Even a disobedient Christian, every child of God, even a disobe- even when we're disobedient, we can cry, Father. Now, that's a marvelous thing. The Lord told us when we pray, pray this way, Our Father. I'm amazed. I may just digress a bit here. I'm amazed. Simple thing. Lord, teach us to pray. When you pray, pray this way. This is the disciples' prayer. Our Father. What do I hear praying today? God, Lord, everything but Father. Wow. Uh, This is now, okay, this now says Abba, Father. Now, that's what it says. We have the spirit of sonship whereby we cry Abba, Father. Now, this word Abba is almost a universal word in languages all around the world. You go to culture to culture. I visited many. You go culture to culture, they'll have a word sounding a little bit like this. Abba, Papa, Baba. You'll have many of these words representing the name Father. There'll be two-syllable names made out of childlike syllables. Easy to speak for a little baby. Abba, Babu, Nanu, Papa, all these different words for Father. And this is the spirit that's given to it. This is faith like a child. This is what's childlike faith. This is where the Lord commands childlike faith. He doesn't tell us to behave like children. He says have childlike faith. What does childlike faith do? Childlike faith turns in immediate affection to Father, Abba Father. And that is what childlike faith is, immediate turning, frequent turning in affection to Father. Only a Christian has God as Father. Only a Christian has the Lord Jesus Christ as high priest. Only a Christian has a spirit of sonship which can lead him. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Only Christians, sons of God. Now, this Spirit of God does a work. Notice the apostle doesn't need to talk about the visible works of the Spirit of God. 
during the time of the writing of Romans. There were very many visible works of the Spirit of God during the time of Romans. Manifestations of the Spirit, divine power visited in such a way as Holy Spirit had its expression, divine power had its expression, called pneumahagion in the Scripture, had its expression in manifest ways for the purpose of testifying to whom God's messengers were such as the speaking in other languages that men had never studied, immediate knowledge, prophecy, healings, and many other outward manifestations to demonstrate who it was that experienced the visitation of the Spirit of God. But here now, in teaching this operation in Romans 8, he's talking about something not visible. And this operation, by the way, is repeated for us by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5. But here it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now we're talking about some invisible operation, some unapparent operation of the Spirit that is internal. And this has to do with the indwelling Spirit of God. We look up in Romans 8 verse 11 and it talks about that he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that indwells you. In John chapter 14, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to the disciples, said, If you love me, keep my commandments, John fourteen sixteen, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. The word another here, one of exactly the same kind. This is the word allos. This is one way you can know that the Word of God is the Word of God. Every Word of God is pure. Two words for another in the Greek language that we find in the Scripture. One is the word allos, meaning one of exactly the same kind. The other is the word heteros, one of a different kind. Both translated another in many occasions. And here it says, I will... Pray the Father, he will give you another comforter, one of exactly the same kind. One just like me, in other words, a comforter just like me, another comforter, or paracletos, or an advocate. So we have an advocate in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have an advocate here, with us, in us. If God be for us, who will be against us? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. That's what he told Pilate. So, of course, the Spirit, being in complete identity with the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive. Because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you shall know him, for he dwells with you, now, this he's telling to the apostles, John 14, just prior to his suffering and death, prior to his passion, he says, he dwells with you. He shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And the way that the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us is in the person of the spirit of the truth, or the spirit of the holiness, or the Holy Spirit. And so he's with the apostles at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ is in his passion and shall be in the future in them. And indeed, he did come, and he is in them, and he's in us if we've received the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world cannot receive the Spirit that is from God, cannot do it. 
So there is a very real distinction here. And now this Spirit, whom we receive and who is in us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, bears witness. Verse 16, here's the mechanics of the Spirit of God with our new nature. This is the mechanics internally to the Christian. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now let me tell you, I can preach the Word of God to you, and uh, you can believe it or not. But finally, consummately, you must be born again. There needs to take place a regeneration. This happens when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive a witness from God himself. The Spirit himself will, in regeneration, will reside in you, and he will bear witness with your regenerated human spirit that you are a child of God. I don't worry about it. I don't have to persuade you that you're a child of God. I don't have to persuade you that the Word of God is true. This is the marvelous, miraculous thing that happens. You hear the Word of God, you believe it, you receive Christ as your Savior, and marvelously, God regenerates you, gives you a new nature. The Spirit of God takes up His dwelling in you and bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And that's the way it is. It's a marvelous birth. It is a birth that is from above, and it's not from below. It's not something passed on. It's something created. It is a new creation by God Almighty. It is the only kind of Christian miracle that is going on today. What a marvelous thing the new birth is. And we'll take up more about it and more about this new nature, and then where we're headed in the Christian life after this brief announcement. I hope we don't lose you. Do stay with us. Now, we learned in Romans chapter 8 about the fact that we have a witness, that the Holy Spirit's indwelling gives us a personal witness with our spirit, that we're the children of God. And then that new spirit turns to God as Father and says, Abba, Father. And that corresponds very well with the Scripture out of First John. And I want to read First John chapter 5 out of here just to show you how harmonious the Scripture is concerning this new birth and how one knows that one is a Christian, how one knows that you're a child of God, that you have eternal life. And we read out of 1 John chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 10. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him, that is God, a liar, because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. Now, that says two things, and they're both very powerful. First of all, it repeats this truth that we read in Romans 8 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, in that it says, he that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. The witness that I'm a child of God is in me. I also have a witness, therefore, as to who the Son of God is. You want to know if I have the witness in myself that I'm a child of God? You ask me, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you a couple of things, and every child of God will tell you at least these two things. First of all, that our Lord Jesus Christ was a man who came into the human race as God Almighty. 
That's one thing every child of God will tell you, that God Almighty became a man and was the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. How that he died for our sins and rose again from the dead as a man, and that he ascended into heaven. And then one other thing that we know from Scripture that the witness every child of God says is that the Lord Jesus Christ as a man will come back flesh and bones to the earth. Now, this witness is given to every child of God. Now, it's not what people like to ask. They like to ask, did you ask Jesus into your heart? I have to answer, no, I never did. I've never asked Jesus into my heart. Or we like to say, well, did you invite Christ, or did you make a decision? I have to say, well, not really, no, but I am a child of God. I have been born again, and I have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have received Christ as my Savior. You see, if we stick with the Bible, friends, uh, then we'll understand more about ourselves and more about the faith, and we'll have fellowship one with another. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not makes God a liar. You're my friend, you're not my brother, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? You're calling God a liar every day you don't believe in him. Because God has made a record that he gave his only begotten Son. Here it says, he that believes not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. I'm reading from 1 John chapter 5, and now verse 12. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. These things I have written unto you, verse 13, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. In other words, he's written it for two reasons. First, he's written it that you who have believed know you have eternal life, and that you have not believed, he wrote it so that you would believe. Well, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, now we see verse 7, if children, then heirs. And that almost goes without explanation. If you're a child, you're an heir. That's what an heir is. An heir is a descendant. An inheritor is the descendant of the one who goes on and leaves his stuff. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, every child of God, an heir of God. Now we have this statement, and this owing to the direction of the Christian life. And joint heirs with Christ, if so be, that we suffer with him. So there's an heirship of God as a child, and there's a joint heirship with Christ as he comes again in glory, if so be, that we suffer with him. And this has to do now with following Christ. This is two airships. It's the general heirship of God. It's the joint heirship of Christ. The joint heirship of Christ having to do with identification with Christ in his sufferings. And, of course, the Spirit of God is going to lead us into sufferings for Christ. That's where you're headed. That's the direction of this life. Look at the way he went. That's the way you're going. The Spirit of God is going to lead every child of God into the sufferings for Christ, that we may be glorified together. Now, this is complicated, and we're going to go on with it a little bit here. Well, it's not really that complicated. It's contested. When I say complicated, I want to say it's highly contested by those who teach the Bible. It ought not be contested because the Christian life is the life of co-suffering with Christ. That's what it is. It is the way of the cross. 
It is not the way of the flesh, nor is it a way pleasant to the flesh. It is a way that makes the flesh crawl. It is the way that makes the flesh say no. But it is the way that the Spirit leads us into the sufferings with Christ. Here it tells us this. We'll be joint heirs with Christ if we are joint sufferers with Christ. We suffer together with him, we'll be glorified together with him. Now, friends, if you don't, you won't. This has to do with a life seeking glory. Let me tell you, the great glory of our Lord Jesus Christ has not yet been enjoyed. He's been glorified in heaven. He will be glorified in all the earth. He will get great glory throughout all ages from every creature. And, of course, that is why we're going to take up after this section here, after the 18th verse, for example, we're going to take up the fact that the entire creation awaits the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the new birth gives us the new nature. It gives us the witness that we're children of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We have our human spirits born from above. And we have this new nature, which does not sin, which turns to God as Father. And now if we will go the way that God has outlined for us to go and prepared for us to go, it will be the way of co-suffering with Christ. And I think this is a lost message. I think this is a message that just isn't being given because it's not pleasant. It doesn't have natural appeal, and we're a very worldly society. We're not a spiritual society. We're not in a spiritual society whatsoever. And the world has made great inroads into the believing Christian community. And somehow, I suppose, we have found that we need to have a proper balance. I I suppose this is really what it is. We need to have some kind of balance between a carnal life and a spiritual life when, in fact, there is no possible way of having such a thing. No man can serve two masters, and you cannot follow after the lusts of the flesh and still be led by the Spirit of God. He will lead you away from those lusts, and he will lead you into co-suffering with Christ. He will lead you every step of the way on the way of a cross, which, by the way, the way of the cross, you have a daily life of the way of the cross prepared for you to walk in. And that is what God has prepared for you. Why has he done it? You say, well, why is he punishing me? He's not punishing you. It is the road to glory, and you could never find it yourself naturally. And so his spirit leads you into it. And, of course, here it says, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with. In other words, we'll heir with if we suffer with Christ, that we may be glorified with him. Now he says, verse 18, the apostle steps out and makes his observation on the entire matter of the Christian life. And here's verse 18, for I reckon, that is to say, now here's reckoning. Here he's reckoning, this is the same faith where he reckons himself dead to sin, alive to God, wherein he reckons that Christ died for his sins. That same faith thinks this way. Here's the thinking of the new nature. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, and let me tell you that the sufferings of this present times, these are sufferings. This is the rejection that Christ knew. 
This is the way of the cross. They're there for you. They're there for all of us if we've believed in Christ. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, this is in order to overcome your depression, which your natural self rising up, according to Romans 7, the thing I would do, I don't do, the thing I don't want to do, that thing I do, as your lust rise up to take a hold of your thoughts, as you consider this spiritual life, the way of the cross, as, as your old man rises up to take control here, the apostle reminds you to think this way, the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to follow, which will be revealed in us when? Well, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And therefore, the Christian occupation, in order to live the Christian life, the new nature needs to be occupied with one thing, and that is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think you can be too occupied with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you consider the coming of our Lord and his second coming and his return, you will realize that that is your hope, and that when you have this hope building up in your life, you'll purify yourself even as Jesus Christ is pure. The rest of the Scripture now here will tell us, will point out to us, that we have to live according to a future hope and not according to the things that we see, because after all, we are on a faith principle, and we're not on a sight principle. So here we have this joint airship with Christ. Now this word, joint airship, is another compound word. You probably figured that out by now. It's another compound word. It has to do with an air together by law with him. That's what it really means. It means an heir together by law with him. You might even say by right with him. It's together with Christ. In other words, the Scripture here teaching us, if we will be together with him in this life below, then we'll inherit together with him in the life to come. There's two heirships named here, heirs of God. That's a present reality. That's something you have by the mere fact that you're a child of God and you have a witness of that. But here the heirship with Christ has to do now with joining in his sufferings. And this twofoldness is seen throughout Scripture. And so is joint heirship seen throughout Scripture. This word occurring three times in the Scripture, it occurs here. It occurs in the book of Hebrews, where we read about Abraham and Isaac living in tents in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, in fact, I think we see it even four times in Scripture. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, we can read of Abraham and Isaac living together in tents. We'll look at it here. By faith, Abraham, verse 8, when he was called to go out into a place which he would after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither where he went. And by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. And friends, that's what we need to do. We need to sojourn as if in a land of promise. Well, we'll take this up more. I hope you're encouraged. I sure am.